You know, the birth of a child is something that produces a lot of emotion. I remember when my wife gave birth to our three children, all of them were joyful occasions, but there's nothing like the first child that's born. All month you're anticipating, or all nine months you're anticipating what the child's gonna look like. Today with technology, we could find out the sex of the child. Some people choose not to. But I remember when my first daughter was born, Caitlin, you'll see a picture of her on the screen there. I remember, I'm not a crier by nature, but I just burst out in tears because there was so much joy. It was a very special occasion. You know, the birth of Christ was very special as well for two reasons. Number one, God became human flesh and died for our sins. But secondly, Jesus' birth was special because Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. In fact, theologians estimate there are about 330 prophecies in the Bible given about Jesus Christ. And of those 330, 109 of them relate to his first coming. And of the 109, several of them relate to his birth. And that's what we want to talk about this morning is the Christ child who fulfilled prophecy. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at both of these chapters, not entirely, but the title of this message is The Christ Child Fulfills Prophecy. Now, whenever you study a letter or a gospel, you want to get the historical context because once you understand the context, you're better able to interpret the book. Now, remember, Matthew was a Jew. He was a tax collector. Jesus led him to saving faith. And Matthew wrote his gospel to Jewish people, and his goal was evangelistic. He obviously wanted to win the Jews over. And the way Matthew did this was he basically has to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus came to be the king of the Jews, and he was the rightful king to the throne. And so Matthew has to demonstrate using the Old Testament and the New Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, their promised king and their promised Messiah. Now, how does Matthew prove that? Well, what Matthew does is he quotes from the Old Testament because the Jews were fastidious in their belief of the Old Testament. And so what he does in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 is he gives us six prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament as it relates to his birth. And by the way, just as a footnote, prophecy is one of the greatest apologetics of the Bible. The Quran does not make prophecies, but the Bible does. And whenever I debate people who are skeptics, agnostic, or atheists, one of the proofs that I use is fulfilled prophecy. There are predictions made in the Bible that have come to pass. And Matthew gives us six of them as it relates to Jesus' birth to demonstrate that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. He is, in fact, the promised King. Let's look at them this morning. We'll look at the first three, and then next week we'll pick up the final three. The first prophecy that Matthew demonstrates to prove that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah is Christ fulfills prophecy regarding his ancestry. Christ fulfills prophecy regarding his ancestry. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, what Matthew's going to do is give the genealogy of Jesus. This is the part that most of you skip whenever you're doing your devotionals. You don't read this section unless you are struggling with insomnia and you want to go to sleep. 
Now, everything, as the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is profitable. And so really, when you dig into this section of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, or Luke's account, chapter 3 of Luke, it is really fascinating, and there's a lot of details here. We're not going to go through all the ins and outs of the genealogical line of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But suffice it to say that Matthew is showing the Jewish people that Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the throne. He is the rightful king of Israel. And what he has to do in this genealogy is prove that Jesus descended from King David. If you read the genealogy, Jesus is in the genealogical line of King David. Now remember, Jewish people were very fastidious when it came to genealogies because it related to the fact if you were qualified to be in the priesthood, they had to look at your genealogy if you were going to qualify. If you're going to be a king, you had to have the genealogical record. If you were to transfer property from family members, you had to have the right genealogy. They were very much into pedigrees and genealogies. Today, we study genealogies. There's kind of a new obsession with one's pedigree or background. In fact, yesterday I Googled the name Nimmer. And I know the history of Nimmer, but if you Google that name, its derivative comes all the way back to Lebanon, either Muslim or Christian. I was on the Christian side. My, all of my ancestors go back to Lebanon. My mom speaks fluent Arabic. Uh, that's what she screamed at me when I was a kid in Arabic. She would yell at me, all right? And so, my mom and my dad go back in terms of their ancestry. We study ancestry today. Why? It's pretty much for our own curiosity. It's for our own self-image or whatever it is we want to find out. Well, in the time of Jesus, genealogical records were very important. So Matthew, if he's going to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is, in fact, their promised Messiah and King, what he's going to have to do is show from the genealogical record that Jesus Christ is the rightful King of Israel. And the way he does that is he shows that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies in the Old Testament that said he would be in the line of David. King David was a king. Jesus is in his line, and therefore he's the rightful heir to the throne. Now you say, well, wait, where in the Old Testament does it prophesy that David or Jesus would follow in the line of David. Well, Jeremiah 23.5 gives us a prophecy that shows how Jesus would follow in the line of David. Notice, if you will, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, here it is, a righteous branch, that's Jesus, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And so we see one prophecy here where David's descendant would be a king who would basically rule and act wisely. Another one is 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a watershed passage because it deals with the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with King David, and basically what he promised David was that he would have an eternal throne. He would have an eternal dynasty. Notice what he says to King David. When your days are complete and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And notice verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, David. Your throne shall be established forever. Now you ask the question, well, wait a minute. How could David's house or dynasty last forever? 
You and I know that people's dynasties come to an end. Even Nick Saban's dynasty will come to an end one day. It comes, to, yeah, some of you are clapping, right? You're tired of Dynasties come to an end. In fact, the longest standing dynasty right now in terms of genealogy is Confucius. In fact, one person said this about Confucius, and I quote, the longest family tree in the world is that of the Chinese philosopher and educator Confucius, who is descended from King Tang. The tree spans more than 80 generations from him and includes more than 2 million members, end quote. Even Confucius's genealogy came to an end, and yet God is telling King David in 2 Samuel 7 that his genealogy would be forever. He would have an eternal dynasty. How could that be? It is because Jesus is a descendant of David, and Jesus is eternal because he is God. Therefore, what Matthew does in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1 is he proves from Jesus's genealogy that he is a rightful heir to the throne because based on the Old Testament, Jesus would be in the line of David. In fact, one of the titles given to Jesus in the Gospels is he is called son of David. It means he descended from King David. Therefore, in verses 1 through 17, Matthew is demonstrating from Jesus's ancestry to the Jewish people that he is the rightful Messiah and the rightful king to the throne. There's a second way that Matthew demonstrates that Jesus fulfilled prophecy and therefore is the rightful king to the throne, and that is this. Christ fulfills prophecy regarding his virgin birth. He fulfills prophecy regarding his virgin birth. Notice, if you will, chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18, he picks up the narrative on Jesus' birth, and he's going to take time to develop this, so bear with me. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, there were two phases to a Jewish marriage. There was what we would call the Kiddushin. The Kiddushin was what we would say in today modern terms like our engagement, except it was much more binding. You were considered during this engagement period, the Kiddushin, you were considered legally married. So if you were found to be in an adulterous relationship, uh, it would be grounds for divorce. And so the Kiddushin lasted about one year, and during that time, the man would prepare the house. Typically, it was his father's house. He would get a place ready, and what he did was he had to pay the father what was called a mohair. A mohair was a bride price. And the reason why he paid that, it was a sizable sum, was because the parents were going to lose their daughter. It was an agrarian society, and so they would lose her services. And so during this kiddushin, he would pay the mohair, and it would last about a year. And then there is a second phase called the hupa, and that was at the end of one year, and that's where they would have the celebration. They would have sort of uh, the procession. You could read about this in Matthew 25 where Jesus told the parable of the virgins. That is a picture of the second phase called the hupa. And then at the end of that ceremony, they would consummate the marriage. So it was during this period, the first phase, the Kiddushin, that Mary and Joseph were pledged to be married. And they were legally married. And so notice verse 18. It says, but before they came together physically, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, you can read about this in Luke chapter 1. Luke says that the Holy Spirit 
came upon her and impregnated Mary. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit did not have sexual intercourse with Mary, but Jesus had to bypass normal means so that he could be virgin-born and therefore be sinless and be qualified to die for our sins. By the way, as a footnote, it's, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and gave her physical life. You know, the Bible says one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to give physical life. If you read Genesis chapter 1, it says that the Holy Spirit brooded over creation and gave life. But the Holy Spirit also gives life spiritually. We are dead in our trespasses and sins before salvation, according to Ephesians chapter 2. And what happens at salvation is the Holy Spirit regenerates us, gives us life. And so the Holy Spirit was the source of Mary's pregnancy. In fact, the Muslims have a different interpretation. The Muslims basically say that Gabriel breathed up the skirt of Mary, and that's what caused her to be impregnated with Jesus. Well, obviously, that contradicts this particular account. So it says, before Mary and Joseph came together, they were found to be with child. Now, obviously, this is not something that happens. Normal means are what produces a child. So when Mary found out that she was pregnant, she immediately, according to Luke's account, went to go see her aunt, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist, and she stayed with Elizabeth for six or three months, rather. At the end of the three months, she comes back and she breaks the news to Joseph. Now, you can imagine the scene when she sits Joseph down and she says, we need to have a talk. Uh, I need to tell you something. And if she's three months pregnant, she's probably showing a little bit. Now, we don't know the details of this. I would love to find out how it happened, but we're not going to know. When we get to heaven, it's probably not going to matter. But she sat him down and she said, Joseph, I got to tell you something. Uh, an angel appeared to me and told me that I'm going to bear the Messiah, the Son of God, which was the hope of every Jewish woman. And uh, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me, impregnated me. Well, what do you think Joseph's response was? Huh? What? What are you talking about? Because a woman doesn't get pregnant other than by sexual intercourse with a man. And so he is in a state of apoplexy. He doesn't know what's going on. And so notice what happens here after he says this to her, or she says this to him, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He wasn't buying it. He didn't believe it. This was something that was super, supernatural. And listen, in that day, Joseph, legally based on the Old Testament, could have had Mary stoned. Now, you've got to understand the Jewish people were not doing capital punishment because they were under the dominion of Rome, and Rome did not allow capital punishment to take place. But technically, he could have had her stoned, and he could have exposed her to public disgrace. But it says because he was a righteous man, he chose to divorce her quietly. Now, this says two things. Number one... We see implicitly from this text that infidelity is biblical grounds for divorce. If a person cheats on you and you're married to them, you have grounds to divorce them. Now, you don't have to divorce them. The higher noble thing is to forgive them and work through the problems in the marriage. But technically, the Bible does teach this because why would Joseph want to divorce Mary? They were in the Kiddushin. They were in the first year and it was legally binding. He was going to divorce her. There's a second thing that we learn here, and that is this, mercy and grace. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. He loved Mary. 
He could have exposed her to public disgrace, but because of the nature of Joseph, he chose not to do that. There was already going to be talk in the village about this, and so she was going to have to bear the stigma of what was going on. But Joseph didn't want to add injury to insult, and so he chose to do it quietly and not expose her to public disgrace. How about you? Do you forgive other people who have hurt you? You know, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have somebody to forgive. And listen, the greater the pain, the greater the offense, the harder it is to forgive somebody. But you know what? God wants us to have a forgiving attitude. Jesus on the cross, as they were hurling their insults at him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That doesn't mean everybody there that was criticizing him was forgiven, but it shows you the spirit and the attitude that Jesus had on the cross. And you know what? God wants us to have that towards others. How about you this morning? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone that has hurt you? And you have every right to have your pound of flesh, but you choose not to. But notice how God intervenes in verse 20. But after he had considered this, that is divorcing her, he thought about it. He reflected on it. An angel of the Lord, probably Gabriel, appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God had to step in and intervene. Why? Because Joseph was going to make a bad decision. And Joseph, we don't blame him. We know based on the information he had, he was making that decision. Now, you would think that he would trust Mary's judgment, but God had to intervene and clarify for Joseph what was really going on. And the angel Gabriel says, hey, look, Mary's telling the truth. This is from the Holy Spirit. And here's another principle we learn. Things are not always what they appear. You know, sometimes we make judgments without having all the facts. We're all guilty of that. Have you ever made a judgment about someone and then you find out information later and you go, oh, Lord, I repent in sackcloth and ashes because I judge them without having all the facts. We all do that, unfortunately. Chuck Swindoll, many of you know him. He's a well-known radio preacher, pastors of a large church in Texas. He's like in his late 80s. He's been in the ministry, I think, 50, 60 years. He told the story one time that he was speaking at a conference. And every morning he would do a session. And he said he noticed this man on the front row that kept falling asleep every time he preached, much like some of you are doing right now. No, I'm just kidding. This guy would fall asleep, and Chuck said he got offended. He was like, how could this guy fall asleep on me? I'm not that bad of a teacher. And so we met a lady after one of the services, and she said, you know, my husband really loves your teaching. He's the guy that sits on the front row and you've seen him fall asleep. She said, he really loves you, Chuck. And she said, you know why he falls asleep? Because he's heavily medicated. He has a physical condition. He has to take medicine and it makes him tired. And Chuck said he was smitten with conviction because he realized he judged not having all the facts. And that's exactly what Joseph did here. He was going to judge without having all the facts and God in his mercy intervened. And then in verse 21, here is what the angel Gabriel said, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. That word in the Hebrew means Jehovah saves because he will save his people from their sins. God gave Jesus this name, not as a label. When we name our kids today, it's a label to identify them. In biblical times, when you gave a name, it signified something about a person's mission or their character. And so Jesus's name is his mission. 
He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And you and I have that mission as well. But then I want you to notice verses 22 and 23. And here is the second prophecy that is fulfilled to demonstrate that Jesus is the Jewish people's uh, rightful king to the throne. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And here he's going to quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which relates to the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus fulfilled prophecy not only in his ancestry that he'd be in the line of David, but secondly, he fulfilled prophecy in his virgin birth based on what Isaiah 7:14 says. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the second prophecy that Matthew quotes here to show the Jewish people to whom he's writing to that Jesus is their promised Messiah is Isaiah 7.14. Now often when we look at this, we understand it to refer to the virgin birth, but we don't realize that there is a double fulfillment in this prophecy. Whenever prophets would make prophecies in the Old Testament, there was typically a double fulfillment. We will call this a near fulfillment, far fulfillment. You'll notice the diagram up on the screen. When prophets would prophesy, there was an immediate fulfillment, an immediate context in which the prophet was prophesying. So in Isaiah 7, when Isaiah was prophesying, he was talking about events that were going on in his own day. But then there is a gap and there is a far fulfillment. That far fulfillment relates to Jesus. And so Isaiah 7.14 has a near fulfillment that was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, but it also has a far fulfillment as it relates to the virgin birth of Christ. So you may ask the question, okay, what was the near fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 7? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah chapter 7, here is the context. Ahaz was an evil king, and he was trusting in the Assyrians to deliver him from these two kings in the north. Ahaz, rather than trusting in God, he was trusting in the Assyrians. And so God tells Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to go to Ahaz. And I want you to tell Ahaz that I'm not going to let these two kings in the north, they formed a coalition, I'm not going to let them come down on you and destroy you. Nor am I going to let the Assyrians destroy you. In fact, Isaiah, I want you to tell Ahaz, I'm going to give him a sign. And that sign will be proof that I will not allow those two kings and the Assyrians to attack him. So he goes to Ahaz and he tells him this. And Ahaz says he's an evil king. I'm not going to ask God for a sign. I'm not going to ask him for a sign. And Isaiah says, wait a minute, you're going to test God? He says, I'll tell you what, God's going to give you a sign anyway. Here's the sign, Ahaz. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And it will prove that God is with you. He will not allow those two kings to attack you. Now, here's the question. Who is the virgin that gives birth? And that son is assigned to Ahaz that God would not allow those two kings to attack him. It was Isaiah's wife. Isaiah married a virgin. And Isaiah's wife, if you read it in chapter 8, she gave birth to a son. Now, she had sexual relations with Isaiah, but she was a virgin when he married her. And Isaiah chapter 8 gives the name of the child. And that child that Isaiah and his wife had was a visible sign that God would not allow those two kings of the north to attack Ahaz. That's the near fulfillment. You say, what's the far fulfillment? The far fulfillment is Jesus. 
And what God is saying is, just like a virgin in the Old Testament, there's a virgin Mary. Mary would give birth to a son, and that son would be a sign that God would deliver his people spiritually. In Isaiah 7, it was a sign that God would deliver Israel physically from those two kings. In Matthew chapter 1, the sign of Jesus' birth was a sign that God would deliver his people spiritually. And so we see the dual fulfillment here as it relates to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It says the virgin, verse 14, will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Well, he ends the chapter in verses 24 and 25 of Matthew 1 when he says, when Joseph woke up, and he knew this was a distinct dream, because we all have dreams, and we sometimes wonder the significance, but listen, when God is truly speaking to you through a dream, you will know it's God. He woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. This is the second phase of the Jewish marriage. You had the Kiddushin, and then you had the Huppah. This is the Huppah. They probably did not have a big procession or celebration because there was a lot of stigma. You think people in the community in the small town of Bethlehem are going to believe this? But notice what it says, he had no union with her, that is Mary, until she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. In other words, Mary had to be a virgin from the time of conception to the time that she delivered Jesus so that there would be no question that this was supernatural. Now, notice it says they had no children until she gave birth. Let me expose what the Catholic Church teaches here, and I'm not trying to attack Catholics, but simply say this, the Catholics teach that Mary remained a perpetual virgin. Once she had Jesus, she never had relations with Joseph, she stayed a virgin, and she did not have other children. Well, we know from Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 6, that Jesus did have stepbrothers and stepsisters. And so that's not true. Mary did have relations with Joseph after she gave birth to Jesus, and they did have other children. So the Catholic Church teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin is not biblical. It's based on church tradition. They also teach that Mary was bodily assumed in heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. Mary was a sinner. They teach that she was immaculately conceived. In other words, Mary was born sinless. And their argument is this. How could she deliver the Son of God if she wasn't sinless herself? But here's the problem. When Mary in Luke's gospel utters forth her magnificent, is what it's called, when she praises God, you know what she says in that magnificent? She calls God her Savior. Mary was a sinner just like you and I. She needed a Savior. So we've seen the prophecy of his ancestry fulfilled. We've seen the prophecy of his virgin birth. There's one more prophecy for this morning that Jesus Christ fulfilled to show that he was the coming Messiah, and that is the prophecy regarding his birthplace. The prophecy regarding his birthplace. Notice, if you will, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now this is about a year or two later. After he was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, the east would be Persia, Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Now what do we know about the Magi? There's a lot of mystery surrounding them. We know some information. By the way, we get the word magician from this. 
The Magi, we know, existed during the time of Babylon. They were there when Daniel was there in the book of Daniel. In fact, Daniel was over them. And so many people believe that's where they got their information about a coming Messiah. Daniel was godly. He showed them from the Old Testament. But we know that the Magi existed during the time of Babylon, and we know especially that they were a priestly tribe during the, time, the reign of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians followed the Babylonian Empire. And they were a specific tribe, like the tribe of Levi. They were a tribe within the Medo-Persian Empire. They were a priestly tribe, and the tribe was called the Magi. They offered up fire. If you read parallels between what they did and what the priests did in the Old Testament, there's remarkable parallels. Now, they not only were religious, but they developed political influence and clout because we know that many of them were advisors to the king. We see this in the book of Daniel. Many of them became kingmakers. They gave political advice. That's why they were called wise men. That really is not a word translated from the Greek. It's a hard word to translate. The best word is the magi. They trafficked in astronomy and astrology. Those were often one. And so they were kingmakers. They provided advice for the king. By the way, there was more than two or three of them. We get the idea of three wise men from the three gifts. We know from extra-biblical literature that when they came into Jerusalem, there was probably anywhere from ten or more of them. They were wearing their religious paraphernalia, probably had that cone-shaped hat, and they had the Persian army behind them. Now, you've got to understand, they were kingmakers, and this is going to be a threat to King Herod, because notice what it says in verse 2 of Matthew 2. They come into Jerusalem, and the Greek says this in verse 2, they kept asking, hey, where's this king of the Jew? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Hey, you over there, come here, come here, come here. Uh, we're here from Persia, and uh, we saw this star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And so it says they kept asking in verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, what is this star? It could be a literal star. That's the Greek word. But some people surmise it was a conjunction of planets, Jupiter and Saturn. We can trace it back and know that there was a conjunction of the planets. I don't believe that. I believe that this was not a literal star. I believe it was the Shekinah glory of God. It was that Shekinah glory that rested in the temple in the Old Testament, in that Holy of Holies room. Because, listen, it led them to Jerusalem, and then it disappears, and according to Matthew chapter 2, later in the chapter, it reappears over the house where Jesus is. And so I believe it was the Shekinah glory of God. And so they're going around Jerusalem, and everybody's kind of threatened by this huge entourage of wise men that are coming in on their horses and on their camels. They're dressed in their religious paraphernalia. The people there are kind of like, what's going on? Is war going to happen? Because the West in Rome and the East in Persia, they had had wars in the past, and so they saw this as a political threat when these guys showed up. Now notice verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod upset? Well, Herod was upset because he was not a rightful king to the throne. Rome had installed him to oversee Judea, and he was not a true Jew. He was what was called an Idumean. He descended from Esau. His mother was a Nabataean. So the Jews did not like him. He was very petty. 
He was very angry. He was insecure. He thought people were conspiring against them. And listen, when Herod got mad, heads would roll. That's why it says all Jerusalem was disturbed with him, because they knew when Herod got agitated, heads would roll. And listen, Herod was so paranoid, he thought his three sons were conspiring against his throne. You know what he did? He had all of his three sons executed. He had his mother-in-law executed. He had his wife, Mariana, executed. The guy was paranoid. In fact, he knew that people didn't like him. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that he died a brutal death. He was eaten up with some type of disease or fungus that ate him, and they said on his deathbed, the putrefying smell was coming out of his mouth. Well, Herod knew that people would not mourn his death because they hated him, and so in order to guarantee that people would cry when he died, he ordered his officials to round up the top officials, the Jewish officials, in Jerusalem, and he said, the moment I die, I want you to execute them. That way, it'll be guaranteed that they'll be crying when I die. He was evil. And so, here are these wise men coming in. They are, watch this now, king makers. They want to make a king. And so Herod's threatened by that because he's not a rightful king to the throne. And then notice what it says in verse 4. When Herod called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, these would be the religious muckety-mucks. They were the experts in the law. They knew the Old Testament. He didn't know where Jesus was to be born. By the way, isn't it interesting that God led the wise men to Herod? And listen, on the day of judgment, Herod is without excuse because Herod called the wise men and he said, look, I can't give you an answer as to where this king is to be born, but he consults the religious establishment and they give him the answer from the scripture. Herod is without excuse. Herod knew. And here's what they say in verse 5 as we close. They tell Herod, these religious leaders, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, and here we get the third prophecy that Matthew gives to show that Jesus is the rightful king. We had the prophecy of his ancestry, the prophecy of his virgin birth. Now we have the prophecy of his birthplace, Micah 5.2. Notice it says in verse 5, In Bethlehem and Judea they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be, my shepherd, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Here's another prophecy fulfilled. Micah 5.2 predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. He was born in this insignificant village. It probably was no more than 500 to 1,000 people. David was born there, but it really was insignificant. It was common knowledge. John chapter 7, verse 40 says the people knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And listen, his birth in Bethlehem wasn't anything unique in some ways. In fact, there's been a lot of unusual births that have taken place in different places. I looked it up on the internet. Here are some unusual birthplaces. At the altar on the mother's wedding day. Can you imagine a woman getting married? She drops down and gives birth right there on the altar when she's getting married. In a toilet cubicle. Outside a car that is parked 30,000 feet on an airplane a woman had a baby in a corridor and then they said a lifeboat well Jesus's birth wasn't unusual like those he was born in a manger in a feeding trough in a stable 
And I don't have time to go into it. There's a lot of different views. Was he born in a cave? I don't think Jesus was born in a cave. That's what the tradition says. Jesus probably, Mary and Joseph, when they left Nazareth, they went to Jerusalem and she gave birth. Listen, they went there for taxation purposes. They went to a family's house. They had family there. And so when they got to their family's house, because everyone was there for taxation purposes, there was no room for them in the inn. You know what the word inn means in the Greek? Kataluma. It means upper room. It's the same word used where the disciples celebrated the Lord's Supper in the upper room. In other words, other relatives were in that upper room. So what they did was they said to Mary and Joseph, go on the side of the house and you can give birth there. And so probably in their relative's house, they were in the area where they would keep the animals. And that's why Jesus was put in a manger. In that sense, it was unusual. But it's not because it was prophesied in Micah 5.2. And so as we close, we've learned that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised King of Israel. How does Matthew prove this? He has to prove it to the Jews. And what he does is he says there's six Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his birth. Here are the first three, his ancestry, his virgin birth, and his birthplace. Now, next time we'll look at the final three that he gives. But in closing, let me say this. What does this say to us today? It simply says this. If God fulfilled all those prophecies about Jesus' first coming, they were fulfilled literally, God is going to fulfill those prophecies made about his second coming literally. So here's the question. Are you preparing for the second coming? You say, Mike, people have been talking about that for a long time. He ain't coming back anytime soon. Listen, I'm not a prognosticator. I don't know the date, but I can tell you this. We are closer now than we were yesterday. And listen, there's a lot of signs that are beginning to line up. You say, well, Mike, how do I know if I'm preparing for the second coming? I can tell you right now. Two ways I can tell. Number one, your checkbook and your calendar. I can look at your checkbook and see if you're investing in the kingdom. And secondly, I can look at your calendar and see if the Lord is the priority based on how you spend your time. And listen, if God fulfilled all those prophecies related to his first coming, he's going to do it with his second coming. Be ready. And then one final thing I think we could take away this morning is this. If the Bible makes these predictions and they came to pass, that means the Bible is the word of God. It is indestructible. And that means you and I need to be students of the word of God. Are we studying the Bible? Are we meditating on it? Not just for information, but to have a relationship with God. Listen, God wants us to be students of the word. That means go beyond the daily bread. The daily bread is good. It's fine. But listen, it's not enough. You got to dig into the scripture. All scripture is inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Be a student of the word of God. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Bible says that being good isn't going to get you to heaven. Being baptized isn't going to get you to heaven. The only way you can get to heaven is if you repent of your sins and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Believing and receiving are different. You may believe in him here, but have you received him? And do you see fruit in your life? Because you don't want to stand before him on the day of judgment and you hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these fulfilled prophecies that we see in Matthew. We thank you, Father, that your word is indestructible. 
and that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne based on his ancestry, based on his virgin birth, and based on his birthplace. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we go out now, help us to be salt and light in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, hey, would you do me a favor? Say hi to someone before you leave, somebody you don't know. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.